Well, friends, on Friday, August 27th, 2021, I, Anthony Gamage, attended a country music concert. Yep, I just lost so many of your respect. I saw it. I saw it. I saw it on your faces. Wow. I went to a Thomas Rhett concert. You know, I can say that with bravado this morning. You know why? Because there were 16,000 other people from the greater Philadelphia area who like country music too. And it was a good concert, right? I feel like I just have to confess that to y'all that I went to such a concert. Well, uh, as you may know, so it was the BB&T Pavilion. So in Camden, it's there on the riverfront. It was a beautiful night. Uh, you put down blankets and you're looking over the river and the bridge. And, and it was really a, a good show. Um, the temperature was just right. Uh, but as you might also know, if you've ever attended one of those concerts on the lawn, sometimes the crowd can be just as interesting as the actual concert itself. And that didn't disappoint on this night either. Um, there was one moment where, so, so the first two uh, groups came and went, and finally it was time for Thomas Rhett, and people were getting pumped, and the lights go off, and you're like, here it goes. And then the whole time Thomas Rhett was playing, the whole time, there was this one dude who, he was on the struggle bus. He was having a hard time that day trying to like get his bearings. But he was walking around our blankets for 45 minutes with his flashlight on just doing this. 45 minutes. A couple times he walked up to my shoes, like five times he walked up to my shoes and he's like, oh. and then he just keeps going. And you just want to be like, what happened? Like, what's going on? He missed the whole concert. You just want to be like, look up, there's a great concert going on. We found out later from, uh, well, his friends weren't quiet about what was happening. He lost his cell phone somewhere. And, you know, okay, if you've ever been to one of these things, you know that the ground, you don't even want to look down there after the concert basically starts. It's all empty cans and balled up, you know, muddy uh, blankets and chickies and peats, uh, you know, crab fry tubs all over the place. There's just no way this guy's going to find whatever it was he was looking for. And I just wanted to reach over to him at one moment and just be like, it's okay, buddy. Like, maybe you can get a new deal on a phone somewhere. You're not going to find it. Let's just watch the concert for a little while, right? We didn't. I don't think he saw an, a, a thing in this entire concert. Well, friends, as we finish this book, it's the last week of the book of Ecclesiastes. Here is basically the the fallen condition of the world that this whole book has been trying to address since the very beginning. It's this, trying to find the meaning of life under the sun is vanity. Trying to find the meaning of life under the sun is vanity. And today we enter into this final summary section of this book. And the reason I say it's a summary section and it actually reads different than the rest of the book is because what precedes it. We talked about this last week. Ecclesiastes 12.8, and it's what we just said. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And so that is the last verse right before we get to our section today. But the interesting thing part is, if you remember 12 whole weeks ago, this is how we started in 1-2. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is a literary technique called an inclusio. It's a phrase that writers will sometimes use to create a frame or a bracket around a piece of text. And this was a very long piece of text, but in a way he's bracketing it off and saying, okay, my argument is done. Here is my summary. And essentially, here's the argument that we've been looking at for all of these weeks. He said, hey, I've already gone before you, reader, and I have searched everywhere under the sun for the meaning of life and the answers to life's toughest questions. 
I've tried to use wisdom and riches, friends, women, enjoyment. And I've continued to explore the answers to life's quandaries and suffering and bad rulers and oppression. And as much as I've searched down here, guess what I've come up with? Vanity. Vapor. Mist. Nothing under the sun can explain it. So in a way, he's saying, hey, I was like the guy at the concert. I've been walking around looking. And that's also the tendency of our human heart, is to walk around looking. But what he invites us to do is say, it's vanity. Look up. Look above the sun. That's where we will find the answers and this meaning. Now you might be like, really? Gamage, you're going to end on vanity of vanities. That's where we're going to start again. We've done this for 12 weeks already. Well, yes. (laughs) But I hope we're different than when we started. I hope after 12 weeks, we're at least encouraged by the fact that 3,000 years ago, there was a book of the Bible written that did not ignore the heart of the world. In fact, it holds it right before us. And it feels like it was written in 2020 and 2021 in many ways. I hope the Holy Spirit has used it to pry our fingers off of our worthless gods and idols that will not satisfy us. And I pray that it's pushed us, or will continue to push us, to find these answers in God. Because here's the summary and the conclusion that he says. The one line that you could say answers everything that he asked in this book is this, the end of the matter is God. The end of the matter is God. And so today as we consider that statement, we're going to look at at really five P's to to take us through the rest of this. We're going to look at first the three things he's used to point us to God in this Creator. We're going to look at phrases he used at pleasure and pain. And then finally, we're going to ask the question, what do we do with this then? In order to do that, we're going to look at this idea of purpose and preparation. And so that's where we're going to head. So if you have your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 12, follow along with me. Beginning in verse 9, it says this, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed to the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is, uh, is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let me pray for us as we get going. Lord, we just desperately need Your Holy Spirit to move our hearts this morning. But if You do not apply these words, uh, Father, uh, our hearts won't move. And so, Lord, would You do Your work Would you guide my words as I preach? And we just pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, well, let's look first at this idea of phrase, right? Uh, Phrase. One of the ways the preacher has worked over the course of these months to point us to the Creator is by the use of phrases. And did you see that in verse 1? It says, The preacher taught weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs or phrases with great care. In fact, it says he sought to find words of delight. There is a power in words and the preacher knows it. And he has painstakingly worked to put these things together. 
This is quite different than our day and age, right? You know, uh, we don't weigh our words very often. We fail to see that not only can words build up, they can also tear down. Usually the most effort we put into our words is when we make a post and say, I usually don't post on social media, but dot, 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 duck. When you read that, just duck, right? Because the rest has probably not been weighed, uh, at least to wonder how it might eviscerate the readers. But friends, this writer is very different. In fact, he understands the power and the impact of words. And he's put them together, as we'll see as we walk through this, to point us to the Creator. And in the Christian faith, words are critically important. At the very outset of our Bibles, it says God spoke creation out of nothing. The power of His Word. If you think about how God Himself chooses to uniquely reveal Himself to it to us, how does He do it? Is it a YouTube video? No. It's this. It's the written Word. The inspired Word of God. Verse 11 gives us a picture of, of really this doctrine of inspiration. Even though this author, the preacher, is weighing these words himself, he actually is understanding that what he is writing is something more significant and comes outside of himself. Did you read that in 11? He said, These words of truth and collected sayings, they are given by one shepherd. In your Bible, the S is likely capitalized, and that's because most commentators would agree he's actually looking beyond himself and saying, The Lord is the one who shepherds his people through the truth of his word. And I would say he believes that about what he has just penned. And to pull the camera back, I think that's true of the wider swath of Scripture. It's this beautiful picture of God not just being this distant creator, but one who understands us and is our shepherd, who is with his sheep. Eventually, we see that demonstrated most clearly by the word himself, as John puts it in Jesus Christ. And one of the things he is saying, or one of the things that we've got to do business with, and this is kind of, you know, pulling the camera back a little bit further, is as we read our Bibles, there is a danger to approach it in one of two ways. One, to make us self-right or self-righteous. Okay, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to be right in God's eyes. I'm going to feel good about myself. Or it's the B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth, right? It's just, this is how I'm supposed to live my life. So I'm just going to do it, right? And, and there's kernels of truth, especially in the B-I-B-L-E. There's wisdom that he gives us to live by. But let's listen to what the Word himself tells a group of religious leaders who, by the way, understands his Old Testament better than any single human being in this room, these people that Jesus is addressing. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, they're going to God's word and saying, I want to find life. I want to find my own righteousness and and get eternal life myself. He says, no, if you're reading your Bible and you fail to see me in every page, you're not reading well. I am the word. It's not just basic instruction before leaving earth. And so, friends, our Bibles are critically important, but, but we must know the, the meta-narrative that's going on behind it, that it's driving us to the person of Jesus Christ. The author here also says, be careful reading words from elsewhere. He's not saying don't do it. He's not saying wisdom is terrible. But in verse 12, he says, beware of anything beyond these. And I think I would pull that out and say, hey, the most reliable words we can have is God's Word in His Scripture. Why? He says, the writing of many books, there is no end. 
And much study is weariness of the flesh. You know, I know I'm going back to YouTube, and this isn't necessarily the written word, but do you know there's, what, 500 hours a minute uploaded to YouTube? And that's like 30,000 hours worth of material an hour. That was in 2019. Who knows what's happened since the pandemic? That's a lot of words, even if some of them are just turtles eating watermelons. That's just kind of weird. But anyway. But he says, be careful. Be careful. I was reading Adam Grant. I love Adam Grant. He's a non-Christian writer. He's an organizational psychologist. And you read one of his books, The Originals, and he makes a statement. And I was just reading his book called Think Again. And he says, hey, I know I wrote this in The Originals, but I changed my mind about it here. And I was just kind of like, that's why it's a crazy maker, to, to go elsewhere for our moorings in life, because people just change their minds, but, but God's Word doesn't. My friend Matt, his freshman year, uh, he uh, had this experience where he moved into the dorm, and his roommate was named Michael, and it was very clear at the beginning that Michael hated his guts. Actually, no, two days before Michael started hating his guts. At the beginning, he said, hey, we might be best friends, he'll probably be my groomsman, you know, in my wedding, and he was really excited, and two days later... My friend Matt goes to a campus ministry event, our campus ministry event, and he went home and this guy hated him. He said, I don't want to talk to you, and he ridiculed him for the rest of the year. My friend Matt went to a very dark place. He wasn't even welcome in his own room. In fact, I got to know him in everybody else's room because he wouldn't ever go home. But you know what changed for him that year? Is that he realized when he woke up, he just sat down and said, Lord, i got to have you make sense of what's going on. And he said God's word became his survival food. He had to wake up in the morning and remind him how God felt about him and, and pray that the Lord would give him the ability to love his friend and that he would hold the hope of the gospel in front of him. And he said, this is no surprise, Jeremiah fifteen sixteen says, Jeremiah says, I heard your words, I ate your word, and they became my heart's delight. Jesus says, we don't live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so in many ways, my friend Matt would say, hey, these phrases and words that we find in God's Word, we should be desperate for them. They should not be a hobby for us, but something that is survival. These aren't words of snacking. It's a feast. In fact, we snack everywhere. We eat cheese puffs all day long. We're not hungry for the steak that God's Word will often offer to us. So here's a question. Do you approach God's Word like a snack or like a feast? What do these phrases really mean? Are they the words of life? Are we willing to hear from God or are we desperate to hear from Him daily? Friends, approach God's Word with desperation. So that's phrase. Let's look at this idea of pleasure in verse 10. Do you see he's arranging it? The preacher sought to find words of delight. All right, so here's the other thing I hope you did not miss. As we talk through a book, it talks a lot about death and oppression and hard, right? That we didn't miss how many times God talks about pleasure and delight. That God actually wants us to enjoy the good gifts that he's given to us. Last week he said, enjoy your youth. We've read time and time again, uh, eat good food and enjoy it. Drink good drink and enjoy it. In one other place he says, if you're married, enjoy your spouse. I grew up in a place where my picture of God was kind of him being a grumpy curmudgeon in heaven with a wet blanket ready to just throw it over anything fun that I wanted to engage with. And that is not the picture we have in Scripture. On Tuesday, I went out to dinner with some friends and we were sitting outside. It was a beautiful night. We ordered good food and good drink and we sat there for two hours and we laughed and we told 
meaningless nonsense jokes and and cut up on each other. And then we talked about with one brother the Lord's thread of faithfulness that he's been weaving through his life for a couple of years. And, And I just sat there and went, God, this is what you're talking about. You want us to delight in you. You give your children good gifts. I do a lot of premarital counseling, and and a pattern I've found over the course of years in doing this counseling is is how low a view these young married couples actually have on physical intimacy. It's something that was rarely talked about in their church and in their families. It was almost anathema. Friends, that's an intimacy in the context of marriage. He gives us to enjoy, and if you don't believe me, turn the page to Song of Solomon. Uh Uh-oh, watch out, right? That's a He wants us to delight in His good gifts. So friends, how much time do you spend dwelling on God the wet blanket versus God the gift giver? David Gibson says this, You know you know your Creator when you realize that the words He speaks are meant to make you smile. Have you thought about that? That's pleasure. Let's look at pain. Verse 11, right? Because here's the second part of Gibson's quote. But another way you know that you know your creator, is when what he says makes you wince. All right, so that's the other side of this coin I just talked about. And the reason I'm saying that from this passage, it says in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. Do you know what a goad is? That's a goad. It's a stick with a point on the end of it. Either it's a straight point or a little bit of a hook. And it's something that shepherds would often use with their animals in the field to kind of tap them and get them going in the right direction when they started veering off in the wrong way. And so it's saying here in verse 11 that that God's word is meant to sometimes, yes, cause pain, to cause us to wince, not because he's this unloving shepherd who doesn't want to care for us, no, so that we can go in the right direction. Friends, let me just say this, don't domesticate your Bible. We live in a culture that hates discomfort and that hates And sometimes when God's word gives us a little bit of heartburn, we rebel against it. We say God can't possibly be loving. And what he's saying here is actually God's word is often used as a cattle prod to move us in a direction to follow him and in a way that leads to life. Friends, time and time again, we are reminded in scripture that we are sheep and we need that prodding. The problem is, is the sheep like to grab the prod and prod the Bible and say, no, 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 I don't like what you're saying. Here's another question. When was the last time you submitted to God's word and acted on what it says, even when you didn't like it? Or how about this? Have you ever obeyed God's word when you found it offensive? All right, so what do we do with this? How do we leave the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, the first thing we do in verse 13 is realize the purpose that the preacher is setting forth for us was how we walk out of this book. Verse 13, the the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so, friends, full stop. Just sit in that. The whole duty of humankind is to fear God and keep his commandments. Not just on Sunday, not in some compartmentalized way but in everything. Now here, let me just say this. Again, in our modern ears, it's easy to dismiss this when we hear the word fear. Because we do live in a day and age where we're seeing, even in the church, right, narcissistic leaders that are harming other people. 
We think of an unhinged, angry person that's causing trauma to the person that is across from them. And that is not the picture of the word fear in Hebrew that we see in the Old Testament. I've said this before, and I need to keep reiterating. It's this idea of a reverence of God that leads to obedience. In fact, here's a great quote. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Now again, I know we have complicated relationships with father figures, many of us. But I had a dad who in many ways loved me to death, and he was the most hulking figure I've ever known. He was huge. And I just remember sometimes being like when he asked me to do something, there was this measure of, oh, okay. But it was quickly met with this reality that he loves us. And that's the picture that in the Old Testament they would have had with God. He delivered them. He was God with them. And in Christ we have uh, the full reality of this. But I would also say this. We spend a lot of time in our culture talking about God as love and Jesus closer than the brother and we're his children. And that is 100% true and we need to camp out there. But do you know what I think we lose in our culture? A sense of awe of God. We're not in awe of him. That is in part the fear. That reverence. We really don't revere God very often. Here's a passage talking about Jesus being God in Hebrews 1. It says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And listen to this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Tim Keller, a pastor, I used to be a pastor in New York. He's doing a whole host of other things now. But he said one of the main turning points in his faith came in a Sunday school class when uh, his Sunday school teacher was teaching on this verse. I'm just going to read to you what he wrote about that. The teacher said, If the distance between the earth and the sun, 93 million miles, was no more than the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. The diameter of the Milky Way would be a stack of paper over 300 miles high. Keep in mind that there are more galaxies in the universe than we can number. There are more, it seems, than dust specks in the air or grains of sand on the seashores. Now, if Jesus Christ holds all this together with just the word of his power, is he the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? Because, friends, when we're not in awe of him, chances are that's what we've done. We've made him our personal assistant, demanded he do what we want him to do. Do you know what we do in that moment? We actually are attempting to, anyway, kick him off the throne and make ourselves God. Has God become your personal assistant? Does he maintain the seat of awe and wonder in your life? Preparation is the last point, and I'll be very brief. Ecclesiastes pushes us head-on in some of the most challenging realities of life. And as we leave this book, we might still have them. Questions that don't have immediate answers. An example of that would be Ecclesiastes 4.1, where he says, there's all this oppression under the sun and there's no one there to comfort them. My mind does go to Afghanistan this week as I see some of the horrific pictures there. What now, Lord? What happens? How do we respond? Friends, we're still probably not going to like this. But in many ways, verse 14 is that response. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
the answer in hope is God will one day put it right. That has to be our starting point to our activity because that's the only way that we will not lose hope. Because if you're like me, every time you walk into extreme suffering, you realize you don't bring the answers. And even if you help change one circumstance, there's a million others that we can't control. And if we have this little Jesus complex thinking we will fix it, it will destroy us and we will despair. We have to hold unrelentingly to this reality that everything hidden, seen, and unseen, He will judge. And He will judge rightly. Now the thing that's really easy for us is it's easy for us to look outside and say, that's unjust and that deserves judgment. We very rarely turn the camera around on ourselves and say, every secret thing is getting exposed and every action of mine will be judged as well. Speaking of YouTube, can you imagine if that secret area of your life, that emotion, that feeling, oops, made it up on YouTube one day and got a million hits? We all have those moments. We all lie to ourselves if we say we don't. And that that actually doesn't deserve the justice of the perfectly righteous God. Here's the good news. Everything we've heard about God and the Creator in this book are shadows of a form that's to come. Think of it. We've seen God the Creator. We've talked about the Word. We've talked about the Shepherd. We've talked about the Judge. we talked about God being a good King. These are shadows of the form that we see as we walk forward to our New Testament. We've heard these words before. John 1, Jesus is the Word. John goes on to talk about Jesus being the shepherd, being the way, the truth, and the life. Colossians 1, last week we read about Jesus being the Creator. In the book of Revelation, we see Him as the true King and the true Judge. This is just an appetizer preparing us for the main course of Jesus who is to come. And you know what the good news about that is? Even though our death and our judgment are our two fixed points in our lives, what we just read in Hebrews 1 said, yes, this Creator holds the world together by the power of His hands, but He also pays the penalty of death on our behalf. Friends, Jesus Christ came and lived a life we couldn't live. He paid a penalty we could not pay through His death on the cross. We've seen it time and time again in this book that the enemy of death we cannot defeat but He did in the resurrection. And He offers by an act of His grace, free of charge, to absorb everything that we rightfully deserve to get judged for, to give us freedom from that, to call us His own. In many ways, this book is pushing us forward to God, saying, quit looking around for answers that you will never find on the ground and lift your eyes up to the Son, not under it, but to the Son of God. Friends, the end of the matter is God. And God is knowable in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, take this book and let us not forget it. Lord, for those of us who need to know today that you delight in us, remind us. For those of us who need your goading this morning, Lord, would you direct us Father, if we have made you our personal assistant, I pray that you will call our heart to repent and to look to you, the only God worthy of our worship in faith. And Jesus, our great shepherd and king,
the Word who is in the beginning, who is holding everything together, who laid your life down for us. Lord, capture our hearts with that reality today. We pray these things in your name. Amen.